It's been a little while, huh? <laughs> okay, I'm going to turn myself on here. Is that better? You guys tell me back there, all right? Okay. Well, it's good to see you all again. It's a great night to be in the house of the Lord. Amen? Amen. All right, we're going to be in the book of Ruth. And um, if you don't know who I am, my name is Brian Hubbard. I think most of you know. I am a Seedline missionary. Um, I go and take John and Romans to different churches, and we put them together. Um, it's a great ministry to be a part of. I just got back from a project this week, and I was talking to, I think, Joseph, and we were talking about it. And it was, it was amazing to see the people turn out to give their time and give the effort to, to put together the Word of God for somebody else that's around the world, halfway around the world, they'll never probably see in their lifetime. They'll never get to know them. So it's always an encouragement to me. Um, and as I think about that, every year that I go somewhere, and I think every year that I want to be able to preach something to those people when I get the opportunity to do that project, I want to be a blessing to the church, I want to be a blessing to them. So I always ask the Lord, I say, listen, what is the message you want me to tell them this year? And it's not just something I don't, you know, think about as a small lesson. I, I mean, I want it to hit. I want it to be home. I want to be an encouragement to them because they're such an encouragement to me. And this is the message the Lord gave me for this year. And um, I don't know if you know much about the book of Ruth, but for me, it's always a personal book. It's, a, it's only four little chapters. And uh, it was the first uh, book that I ever preached out of. And uh, I got asked to preach, and I didn't thought I was going to preach something else. And sometimes the Lord does that to you, just gives you something else and goes, no, no, how about this? So this year I was praying for it, and, and uh, I want to share some different things that the Lord has shown me out of his word today and something that really just struck me that I didn't know. And I'm, I trust it will be encouragement for you. And um, so we'll go ahead and read. I'll make my prayer, and then uh, we'll get into the message. We're going to be in chapter 4 of the book of Ruth. Moreover, we're going to be in verse 9 is where we're going to start. And uh, the Bible says, And Boaz said unto the elders and unto all the people, Ye are witnesses this day, that I bought all that was Elimelech's and all that was Chilion's and Malon's of the hand of Naomi. Moreover, Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of Malon, have I purchased to be my wife, to raise up the name of the dead upon his inheritance, and that the name of the dead be not cut off from among his brethren, and from the gate of his place. Ye are witnesses this day. And all the people that were in the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. The Lord make the woman that is come into thine house like Rachel and like Leah, which too did build the house of Israel. And do thou worthily in Epitaph, and be famous in Bethlehem. And let thy house be like the house of Pharez, whom Tamar bare unto Judah, of the seed which the Lord shall give thee of this young woman. Let's go ahead and pray. Father in heaven, we come before thee this day, Lord. Gather together in your house as you have commanded us, Lord. Thank you for these people that are willing to show up and the want to worship you, Lord. I pray that you would open our hearts and our minds of understanding that today we would get out of the word what you would have us to get, Lord. And I pray that you would put me behind the cross, Lord. And I pray that it would be the words that you would have to be preached and that I would get out of the way and that you would have it to work in their hearts, Lord. And I pray that it's a blessing to them. Thank you for them. Thank you for their willingness to, to labor, to give of their time, Lord, to serve in the church. Thank you for this church. Thank you for pastor being watch over him. Is there a way? Thank you for everything that you give to us, Lord, each and every day, all the blessings. We ask it all in Christ's name. Amen. Now, sometimes, <clears throat> if you don't know much about the story of Ruth, it might be kind of confusing maybe what's going on at this point in time. So just for a quick summary of that, I'll just tell you a little bit about what the story is because you need to understand it for contextual, for, uh, contextual understanding. So we can understand that, what is going on, so we know why these different things that I'm going to show you or are going to talk about, that it matters. And first, in the book of Ruth, it's just simply Naomi's story. Now, some people might not understand that, but it really is Naomi's story. It starts with Naomi and it ends with Naomi, which I always thought was interesting. And it's just a, a story about a woman named Naomi who her, her husband and her two sons, they come to Moab. And, it's a, and they're out of uh, 
Bethlehem, Judah, because there's a famine in the land. So they decide to go somewhere else to try to find sustenance. Now, I wondered if they were farmers or what the case was, and some interesting reasons as to why that is. Nevertheless, they go there, and they're there for a while, and the husband dies. And the two sons are left. They take wives of Moab, and they spend 10 years with their wives, but then they die. And all you have left is the two daughter-in-laws. One is named Orpah, one is named Ruth, and Naomi. And they decide then that we're going to go ahead and return back to Bethlehem because they've heard that there's no famine in the land. We can read that down in verse uh, 7. It says, Wherefore she went forth out of the place where she was, and her two daughter-in-laws with her. And they went on the way to return unto the land of Judah. So it was their decision to go ahead and do that. They were of one mind that they were going to do that. They had already left. For me, that's kind of personal because when I thought about these things and moving out to California, you went through all the things you had to do, all the stuff I gave away, what do I really need. You make all the planning, you get it ready, and you leave. And then an interesting thing happens, and sadly, it's something that happens to all of us. See, Satan gets in the way, and he starts working on Naomi's heart. And she starts telling her daughter-in-laws, listen, I know we've already left, but forget it. Go ahead and turn back. Because there's no hope for me. Don't you understand? I don't have a husband anymore. I don't have any sons. There's no one else for you to marry. That would be the culturally appropriate thing for them to do. She basically tells them there's no hope for me. Satan starts getting to her, starts getting her to talk about their mothers. She literally tells them, return unto your mother's house and to the husbands you might have. She's thinking about these things that they're not going to have. Her heart's got to still be grieving for her sons, yet Satan is just wailing away on her. I don't know if he knows what God's plan is, but boy, he's trying to get in the way. And so, of course, the ladies refuse at first, but then, you know, Naomi makes a really good argument. I don't have any sons. Even if I was married today, if I had a son today, would you wait the 15 years or whatever it would take for that son to be of age so that you could marry them? It doesn't make any sense. So finally, Orpah concedes. Okay. And I got to tell you, it's hard to be around somebody who doesn't want you to be around them, even when they're going through a really, really tough time and you're trying to be a help and a blessing to them. But when she turns to Ruth and she says, listen, your daughter, your sister-in-law, has returned, returned like she does. Ruth has a different response. And she becomes stubborn. She's not going to leave. So much so, she says, listen, the only thing that's going to part us is between you and me is death. You can go over to chapter 2, and then something funny happens in my, my mind because it's, she's so stubborn that basically Naomi gives up arguing with her. You can see it in chapter 1 and verse 18. She says, when she, when she saw that she was steadfastly minded to go with her, she left speaking unto her. <laughs> she just basically said, all right, I'm done. I can't argue with it, I can't win. I'm not going to admit I lost. So what happens then? They end up in back in Bethlehem, and Naomi tells other people, they're saying, listen, is this Naomi? She says, no, 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 you call me Mara, for the Lord has dealt bitterly with me. She, I went out full, I came home empty. She's still grieving for her son's loss. She believes the situation's impossible. There's no way it can ever change. There's nothing that's good that's going to happen about it. Now, if I was to put a title to this message, and I did, and it was, it's going to be called Impossible. Just one word, impossible. So Naomi, in her heart, I mean, yeah, Naomi in her heart believes that's the case. So Ruth decides in chapter 2 she's going to go out and she's going to start gleaning. Now, if you don't know what gleaning is, it's when they take the wheat and harvest and they, they, uh, they harvest it. And basically some of the seeds fall off of that. You always lose some. You're not going to get 100% of everything. And so the poor people that come along, the destitute, the widows, those that were broken, didn't have an opportunity to earn a living any other way or anybody to take care of them, would literally dig down in the brush that's left and pick those individual seeds up to try to make something for them to eat all day long. And in the case of Ruth, she's trying to do that not only for herself, but for Naomi. And so that's what she's doing. The Bible tells us that she ends up in Boaz's field, chapter 2, verse 2. And Ruth the Moabitess said unto Naomi, Let me now go to the field and glean ears of corn uh, of him in whose sight I shall find grace. She didn't know. And she said unto her, Go, my daughter. 
And then it tells us in verse 3, She went and came and gleaned the field after the reapers, and her hap was to light on the part of the field belonging unto Boaz, who was the kindred of Elimelech. Now, it's interesting to me that that shows me that the Lord led her there. She might think it's random chance, but if you know anything about the Lord, you know it's not random chance. So she ends up in that field. What does she do? She gleans there for a while. Then Boaz comes along, and I noticed that the Lord didn't remove her trial, but she, he gives her grace. Boaz says, listen, don't tell, tell some men, don't, don't drive her away. I know she's young. She's got to be in somewhere in her mid-20s, maybe late 20s. See, normally it would be for the widowers, again, for the helpless, those kinds of things. Here comes Ruth. She's this young woman. They're thinking, no, you can work somewhere else, usually. But Boaz tells him, nope, don't do that. Don't drive her away. As a matter of fact, if you get thirsty, you can drink out of the well. That's my well. You have permission. And when I feed my servants, you come at the middle of the day. He gives her grace in the midst of her trial. And I'm sure that the Lord had something to do with that. So what happens after that? She comes back and she learns. She works from day into night. She comes back and she learns. She comes back and tells Naomi, listen, Naomi says, where have you been? She says, I've been in the field of Boaz. She says, it's good you've been in the field of Boaz. He's your near kinsman. Tells me again, she didn't know. So what happens? She continues on and does that for a couple of months. Till the end of harvest, I guess. Somewhere along the line, Naomi tells her, listen, there's a cultural appropriate way to ask for somebody to do the part of the near kinsman for you. And she does that. She goes to Boaz and she does that. And uh, she goes through the cultural appropriate way to do that. And while in the midst of that, Boaz, we find out, Boaz tells her a couple different things. He says to her, first, you've, done, you've been more honorable to me now. I'm an older man. Listen, you could have had a husband that was younger, rich or poor, but you didn't do that. And that tells me something interesting. That tells me that Ruth wanted to do the right thing in the right way. Why? Because a young man could have came along. She could have married them. She could have taken care of them. Maybe he would have taken care of Naomi. Even a rich man would have been really, if she'd have thought about it, because she wasn't just thinking of herself, that would have been a hard thing to say no to. It's the easy way out. I can marry this rich man and he'll take care of them. He'll take care of me and Naomi, but she doesn't do that. And then he tells us in verse 11 of chapter 3. He says, And now, my daughter, fear not, I will do thee all that thou requirest. For all the city of my people doth know that thou art a virtuous woman. How do they know that she's a virtuous woman, Boaz, unless you've been talking to her? Or you've been talking to them, I guess I should say, all the people in the town. And apparently they've been talking to him. They've all been watching, been paying attention to what she's been doing. So then she goes along and he says, but by the way, we find out something else. I can't do it just yet. See, there's a hiccup. There's somebody else who is a nearer kinsman to you, and a culturally appropriate thing is he has the first right of refusal or the first duty to do that. More, more likely the duty because of the Jewish culture. And I, I need to go talk to him first. If, however, he won't do it, then I will. You wait, and I'll, I'll go and find out. And so that's what he does. He goes before that man. And he says to him, we can find in verse 4, uh, or I'm sorry, chapter 4, verse 4, and he tells the man, and I thought to advise thee, saying, talking about the land that Naomi's going to sell, buy it before the inhabitants and before the elders of my people. If thou wilt redeem it, redeem it. But if thou wilt not redeem it, then tell me that I may know, for there is none to redeem it besides thee, and I am after thee. And he said, I will redeem it. Verse 5, then, Boaz, then said Boaz, what day thou buyest the field of the hand of Naomi, thou must buy it also of Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of the dead, to raise up the name of the dead upon his inheritance. Verse 6, and the kinsman said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I mar my note inheritance. Now, you and I can get in a theological debate about why it is exactly that guy picked that. We don't know. It's hard to read his mind. I have some ideas. I've read some different commentaries. I don't agree with any of them, unfortunately. It's funny to me. But nevertheless, this man decides he can't do this. So Boaz says he's going to do that. And that's where we picked it up in verse 9. When he tells them, you're the witnesses. 
And that's where we are today. So now sometimes when you read the word, why do I need to know all this? When you read the word, sometimes you can read a different portion of scripture and God will show you something. You can dig down into a particular word. This is what the Greek word of this is, or this is what the Hebrew word means. And that's great. It is for better understanding. But sometimes you need to back up a little bit. Sometimes you need to look at the broader picture. What's the point the Lord's making here? Sometimes it's in a chapter. What's a chapter about? Sometimes you back up and it's what it's a book about. Well, I know what happens. Boaz redeems her. They get married. And then God blesses the union. You can look down in chapter 4 and verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth and she was his wife. And when he came in unto her, the Lord gave her conception and she bare a son. What does it tell us? And the woman said unto Naomi, Blessed be the Lord which hath not left thee this day without a kinsman, and that his name may be famous in Israel. Verse 15, And he shall be unto thee a restorer of thy life, a nourisher of thine old age. For thy daughter-in-law which loveth thee, which is better to thee than seven sons, hath bore him. And Naomi took the child, laid it into her bosom, and became nurse unto it. And the women, her neighbors, gave it a name, saying, There is a son born unto Naomi. And they called his name Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now we know the story. So you say to me, well, what's, what's the point? Well, I'm watching what the Lord is going to do. I'm watching how the Lord is making this happen. I'm watching what, these, what the Lord is, the way the Lord operates. See, that's the first point. Why do I read scripture? Why do I study it out? Why do I read the stories over and over again? Why do I take the 3,000 foot look? Because I got to know how God operates. I want to have God in my life and I want to follow along. I got to know how he operates. We say, well, what do you mean? Well, I can go back to Boaz's field. See, I said before, it was interesting that God didn't remove her trial. She still had to glean every single day, but God gave her grace in the middle of the gleaning. Here you go. I'm going to make sure that Boaz's heart moves for you. He's not going to drive you away. This is the field you're going to be in. I'm leading you here. This is a place you don't even understand what I'm doing in your life right now. I got a plan. I'm going to give you water. I'm going to give you food. I'm going to take care of you. You just got to stay the course. What about Ruth's testimony? Why, Ruth, do you have to stay the course? Why you got to go through the trial? Because you need a testimony. There are those people there. You're a Moabite. You don't understand the cultural thing, or maybe you do. They're never going to accept you truly. They're never going to believe unless they see in you something that's amazing, unless they see in you something that's true, unless they see your character come shining through, and they know, and they watch those men, young men and old, or young men and rich and poor that come up, and they say, hey, here's the easy way out, but not Ruth. No, I'm not doing that. She's not a Moabite. She's, I mean, she's not a Jew. She's not obligated to follow their culture. She's not obligated to... She still does. She still does the right thing in the right way. There's the Lord guiding her along in the right way. Well, how do you know that? How do I, well, I can watch the Lord bless this union. I know it's the Lord's plan. I can watch the Lord leading them back. I, I realize that, guess what? The Lord decided whether or not the sons were going to die and the daughters were going to laws were going to be spared. And they were Moabites. The sons were Jews. But God said, nope. Not them, but you two. I can watch the Lord bring them back. I know that's his intent. He brought Ruth back. I know he plants her right in the field. I know then, you know, he tells her what to do. He gives Naomi wisdom and, and guidance and pricks her heart. Says, go tell her how to do this. She doesn't know. She needs to know. And what happens? I see a son born. A son. They needed a son. You don't understand. It wasn't good enough just to have a child. They needed a son to carry on the inheritance. It literally tells us that, you know, she wouldn't be left without a kinsman. Right? And the son, and they say literally at the end, the son is born unto Naomi. And you say, okay, that's great. And even more, I know it's God's plan because when it tells me in verse 17 of chapter 4, and they called his name Obed, he is the father of Jesse, the father of David. What David is that? That's King David. You know, the man after God's own heart. And oh, by the way, the man in the line of Christ. So guess what? Here's Ruth in the line of Christ. You don't end up in there by accident. 
So I got to understand when I'm reading scripture, I need to know and pay attention to how God operates. I need to pay attention to what he's doing. I want to see that operation in my own life. Secondly, I get to see God's character. I start paying attention. We already talked a little bit about how God decided that I'm not going to remove your, your trial. There's a reason for it, but I'm going to give you grace in the middle of it. It's not a harsh thing. I mean, think about the difficulty she would have had if she wouldn't have, even if he, Boaz had said, okay, you can stay, but you don't have any water. You don't have any food every day. How hard would that be? God gives her grace to be able to go through that trial, to be able to, to stay the course, to be able to sustain, to be able to make it through. You know, we talk about the Lord sometimes carries us when we can no longer walk. But here in the case of Ruth, man, that had to be hard every single day going out there. and thinking, what do I do, Lord? Naomi telling her, there's no hope. Don't you understand? It's impossible. Ruth doesn't know how things are going to turn out. She has no idea. She's just following along on what she's supposed to do. So that bodes a question from me, because if you've ever heard me preach before, you know I always have questions. <laughs> Here was my question. Okay, Lord, since I know it's your intent and I watch what you're doing, I know it's your will. My question, Lord, is, was there a place for Orpah? What happens, Lord, if Orpah makes a different choice? Because I want to know. I know that my Lord and Savior doesn't decide for us. God decides, okay, I'm going to do something, and then it's up to us to follow along. He sets the path. It's up to us to say yes or no. It's always our choice. So, okay, Lord, what happens if Orpah says yes? Is there a place for her? This is what I found. I found out there were two sons. There were two daughter-in-laws that were left. And when I come back, how many guys that we took, told in the story that they're where to redeem them? I find that there's only two. Now, some people might say, well, listen, brother, I don't know about that. Might be reaching. Well, it's interesting to me that God only chose to tell us the two. Maybe there's more people after Boaz, but he didn't say that. You can go back to chapter 4 and verse 4, and what does it say? I may know, for there is none to redeem it besides thee, and I am after thee. From from Scripture, it seems a lot like to me that Boaz is telling us, listen, there's only the two of us. There's nobody else. Maybe that's not the case, but the Lord sure didn't see fit to tell us. And what do I find? I find that there's a son born afterwards, the blessing there. So, I'm going to ask you this then. From what I know of the Lord, does the Lord ask me to, or does the Lord only make a way after I've made the decision to follow him? Or does he make a way long before I ever decide to follow him? We can go through scripture and get a lot of different examples. I'll give you the best one. Christ. Christ died on the cross for us whether we'd say yes or no. Whether we would ever decide to follow. He paid the price for our sins in totality before we'd ever say yes or no. Knowing all the full well ahead, the ones that probably would and the ones that probably wouldn't. I don't want to get into Calvinism there, but... Nevertheless, the choice is still ours. So I find out, I find God's character. I read scripture to know how God operates. Number two, I know, I need to know God's character. Why? Number three, so I can know who God is. Now we're going to get to the portion of scripture that I read. As you're reading down through there, I found some very interesting things. Here it is, Boaz is telling them, I'm going to redeem Ruth to be my wife. And in verse 11 of chapter 4, all the people that were in the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. The Lord make the woman that has come into thine house like Rachel and like Leah, which too did build the house of Israel. I stopped there because something sounded really weird to me. I'm just saying, for those people who just recently got married, ladies, what would you do if you know you're standing there and all the blessings of all the other people were talking about two women? You might turn to your husband and say, Is there something you want to tell me? Now would be a good time. Does he have another wife? I don't know. But I found it very interesting. They didn't pick Sarah as their example, the one who waited until the very end. 
or till, the, till she was old age, the Lord blessed her and gave her a child. They didn't talk about uh, Rebecca, who the one that God had Abraham's man go and find and turn around and come back for Isaac. No, no. They pick Rachel and Leah. Why? An interesting thing, I don't, I don't know, but I found it very interesting. Now, I could argue that I didn't think that Boaz had a wife. Now I'm kind of the mind that maybe he does. The Bible doesn't tell us. But something else struck me, too. And that was this. They said that, may it be the, the Lord make the woman that has come into thine house like Rachel and like Leah. Why did you say Rachel first? Because see, and culturally, if you, if you follow the story, you know that Leah married Jacob first, and then Rachel married Jacob. But that's not what you guys said. Now, commentaries will tell me that because, oh, well, it's because that he loved Rachel first and he intended to marry her. I got to tell you, the Lord doesn't operate in what you intended to do. The Lord operates in what you did. I meant to do good, Lord. Yeah, but you didn't. I didn't mean to do bad. Yes, but you did. That's not how the Lord operates. So why mention Rachel first? So I started examining what's Rachel's problem. Well, we know the story. Rachel's barren. She doesn't have any children. As a matter of fact, when you dig in the story a little bit more, not only does she not have children, she doesn't have a son. And this is important. It matters. We know the context of the importance, and it reminded me, guess what? The story is about a woman who doesn't have a son. Her name is Naomi. Not only that, Rachel couldn't fix her situation until God intervened. She was barren. And then the Bible literally tells us the Lord opened her womb. See, Rachel had a situation she couldn't get out of. She couldn't fix until God got involved, until God took the impossible situation of Rachel and turned it into possible. I find out Naomi's in the same boat. She can't have a son. As a matter of fact, she's had two. They're gone. She's not going to have any more. She can't fix her situation. There's no way. She literally tells us in the beginning it's impossible. Well, you know the end of the story until God gets involved. And then it becomes possible. And then I thought about this. You know, Ruth's in the same boat. She doesn't have a son either. She's gleaning in the field because she has no heir. She spent 10 years with her husband. She can't fix her situation. She's in a foreign country. They don't have to accept her, of course, until God gets involved turns an impossible situation into possible. And then I read down a little farther in, verse, or in chapter 4, verse 12. What does it say? And let thy house be like the house of Pharaoh's whom Tamar. Tamar. That's interesting. What's Tamar's story? Tamar married the first son of Judah. What happened? The Bible literally tells me that he did evil in the sight of the Lord. They were married. They had no children. The Lord killed them. She gets married to the second son. What happens? The Bible literally tells me the second son does evil in the sight of the Lord. They have no children. God kills him. She is set to marry the third son, or at least Judah comes to her and says, listen, don't leave. Don't marry anybody else. If you wait around till the third son comes along and he gets of age, I'll marry you to him. I'll give you to him to marry. Only problem is Judah doesn't live up to his word. And so what happens? We know that Tamar takes a situation in her own hands, but to find her in a situation where it's an impossible one. She can't fix it. She can't decide to marry somebody else. She has to be asked, somebody has to ask her. So what do I find? Then she takes matters into her own hands. Now, I know that we say that that was not correct, but I find a situation where the Lord sometimes says, listen, this is not my will, but you know what? I'm going to allow it. Why? Because Judah, you didn't live up to your word. And maybe God intended for the third son to have that son. And so now, guess what, Judah? You're going to be the father. And as a matter of fact, I'm going to record it in my word for, your, for the rest of eternity so you can bear that shame of what you did, what you didn't do. And so I find another woman named Tamar in the same impossible situation that can't be fixed until God gets involved. You say, well, she took matters in her own hands. Yeah, but you can't decide whether or not you're going to have a child, let alone she has a son. Same woman, same problem. I find four different women all have the same problem inside of a simple little piece of scripture. Turn over one chapter. What do you find? What's the next book? First Samuel chapter one. What's first Samuel tell us about? It tells us about a man named Elkanah. 
Chapter 1, verse 2, and he had two wives. This sounds familiar. The name of one was Hannah, and the other name was Panana. And Panana had children, but Hannah had no children. What do I find? Just to drive home the point, I find another woman that has the same problem. She can't have any children. You listen to the prayer. Not only does she not have any children, she needs a son. Guess what? God gets involved, takes an impossible situation, turns it possible. Why does this matter? Because the entirety of this story is about redemption. The entirety of this story is a picture of our redemption. We're in a possible situation that we cannot fix until God sent his son. Guess what? God turns the impossible into possible. It's as if he's just driving home the point. Why do I need to know this? Because I need to know how God operates. I need to see God's character so I can know who God is. So I can trust him. All of those people had impossible situations. God changed them all. And they glorified him for it. You know what? I find myself in a situation today. I'm sitting here living in a world I don't like. Things I don't like to see. And believe me, there are times when I pray and ask the Lord. I don't know how we're ever going to come back from this. They're probably literally going to be called the damaged generation. Because of the things that's being done to them. The lies they are being sold. And told, oh, you can be better. The hurt in your heart can be cured. If you'll just pay a bunch of money, you'll suffer a bunch. Maybe you'll have a life without complications. Well, that's not true. And I'm watching our country go in a direction. And I'm asking, Lord, how do we turn back? But then I find out, guess what? There's a story in there. There's lots of stories in there. You say to me, well, I don't know. Scripture is supposed to prove out Scripture. Really? Well, I wonder if I can find any other stories in there of the same thing where my Lord turns an impossible situation into possible. Maybe if we could just go back to that very son, David, who's 14 years old, standing before a nine-foot-tall Goliath, and the entirety of Israel's thinking, hey, we need a champion. There's no way this guy can be beat. And out comes little 14-year-old David, and they're thinking, this is the guy. This is the champion that you sent out. This 14-year-old short guy doesn't have any armor, and you've got a sling. That's cute. You're going to get killed. This guy's nine-foot-tall. There's no way we can win. It's impossible. And across the way is the thinking the same thing but with a different heart this is their champion this is their guy there's no way we can lose right up until he gets hit in the head he falls over i wonder if there was a half second of hush as everybody was just sitting there wondering what is going to happen next and david runs across and grabs the sword and ends any doubt and in a moment of time in a split second their life went from we're in disaster there's no place of hope it's impossible to absolute victory and the other side saw the flip side they couldn't believe it or maybe It's Moses standing at the Red Sea and the Israelites are saying, Moses, you've literally killed us. You've brought us to our death. There's no way we can get out of here. The Egyptians are coming. I noticed they gave us gold and they didn't give us weapons. We're going to die and it's your fault. There's no way to get out of it. We're in an impossible situation. Of course, right up until the Red Sea parts. On dry land, they're crossing, which should be impossible. Or maybe it's Gideon hiding behind a threshing floor. The angel of the Lord shows up and says, Thy mighty man of valor. I picture Gideon looking around going, I think you've got to be talking to somebody else because no, you ain't talking to me. I don't know if you notice this or not. I'm trying not to die and starve at the same time. But yet he does. I want you to get together troops. No, that's too many. It's not good enough. Cut them down. No, cut them down some more. When there's only 300, that's good enough. It should be impossible for them to win. But God gets involved and they win. Or maybe it was just like when Brother Schwanky was up here preaching about three young boys that got thrown into a fire seven times hotter. They should have died. Should have been over. I see an impossible situation turn into possible. Why? Because my Lord and Savior is involved. So as I go forward today, I got to remember how God operates when I look at today's situations. I got to remember God's character. I got to know who God is because I got to trust that He 
is involved, and he is the God that turns impossible situations into possible. And I think back to Ruth's situation, and that God didn't take her out of her trial. This might be the trial the generation has to go through before they turn to God. We might have to be the witnesses that are standing there testifying. So what somebody else says, listen, I know the Lord is a virtuous Lord. Why? Because I watched you in the midst of it. I can see it in different people's in my, uh, in my life. And sometimes I marvel at how far they've come. They're not there yet. There's still an opportunity. There's still a chance. I see 46 kids getting saved at a VBS. Are you serious? Amen. The Lord's still at work. There's still hope. So I don't know. Today we're going to have a moment of invitation. And maybe, Christian, you're struggling with that very same thing. You guys would go ahead and stand to your feet and bow your heads. Maybe you're having that situation right now. The piano player would come and play. We're sitting here thinking, wondering, Lord, how are we going to get through this situation? How do, we, how do we understand what's going on, Lord? How do, I, how do I stay the course? It's hard. I tell you, for me, it's a missionary. It's hard. But I've got to remember how God operates. I've got to remember God's character. And I've got to know who he is so I can trust him. Or maybe you're a lost person today. You don't know the Lord as your personal Savior. And you're thinking and saying, there's no way. You don't understand what I've done. You don't understand the places I've been. You don't understand the things that have gone on. Listen, it's too late for me. Don't let Satan tell you that. So that's the argument he made for me. It's too late for you, Brian. You're in your 40s. It's over. Only difference is that wasn't the truth. You might be telling yourself as a lost person, I don't know, God. There's no way I can. It seems impossible. Why don't you come find out how God turns the impossible into possible to start in your own life? If you feel like the Lord has spoken to your heart, you come.